Section 51 of The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maxim Babich from Jesnogorsk. The Man Who Loves by Victor Hugo. Part 2. Book the Second. Gwynplaine and Dia. Chapter 5. The Blue Sky Through the Black Cloud. Thus lived these unfortunate creatures together, Dia relying, Gwynplaine accepted. These orphans were all in all to each other, the feeble and the deformed. The widowed were betrothed, an inexpressible thanksgiving arose out of their distress. They were grateful. To whom? To the obscure immensity. Be grateful in your own hearts. That suffices. Thanksgiving has wings and flies to its right destination. Your prayer knows its way better than you can. How many men have believed that they prayed to Jupiter when they prayed to Jehovah? How many believers in amulets are listened to by the Almighty? How many atheists there are who know not that in the simple fact of being good and sad, they pray to God? Gwynplaine and Dea were grateful. Deformity is expulsion. Blindness is a precipice. The expelled one had been adopted. The precipice was habitable. Gwynplaine had seen a brilliant light descending on him in an arrangement of destiny which seemed to put in the perspective of a dream, a white cloud of beauty having the form of a woman, a radiant vision in which there was a heart, and the phantom, almost a cloud and yet a woman, clasped him, and the apparition embraced him, and the heart desired him. Gwynplaine was no longer deformed, he was beloved. The rose demanded the caterpillar in marriage, feeling that within the caterpillar there was a divine butterfly. Gwynplaine, the rejected, was chosen. To have one's desire is everything. Gwynplaine had his, dear hers. The abjection of the disfigured man was exalted and dilated into intoxication, into delight, into belief. And a hand was stretched out towards the melancholy hesitation of the blind girl, to guide her in her darkness. It was the penetration of two misfortunes into the ideal which absorbed them. The rejected found a refuge in each other. Two blanks, combining, filled each other up. They held together by what they lacked. In that in which one was poor, the other was rich. The misfortune of the one made the treasure of the other. Had Dia not been blind, would she have chosen Gwynplaine? Had Gwynplaine not been disfigured, would he have preferred Dia? She would probably have rejected the deformed, as he would have passed by the infirm. What happiness for Dia that Gwynplaine was hideous! What good fortune for Gwynplaine that Dia was blind! Apart from their providential matching, they were impossible to each other. A mighty want of each other was at the bottom of their loves. 
Gwynplaine saved Dea. Dea saved Gwynplaine. A position of misery produced adherence. It was the embrace of those swallowed in the abyss. None closer, none more hopeless, none more exquisite. Gwynplaine had a thought. What should I be without her? Dea had a thought. What should I be without him? The exile of each made a country for both. The two incurable fatalities, the stigmata of Gwynplaine and the blindness of Dea, joined them together in contentment. They sufficed to each other. They imagined nothing beyond each other. To speak to one another was a delight. To approach was beatitude. By force of reciprocal intuition, they became united in the same reverie, and thought the same thoughts. In Gwynplaine's tread, Dea believed that she heard the step of one deified. They tightened their mutual grasp in a sort of sidereal chiaroscuro, full of perfumes, of gleams, of music, of the luminous architecture of dreams. They belonged to each other. They knew themselves to be forever united in the same joy and the same ecstasy. And nothing could be stranger than this construction of an Eden by two of the damned. They were inexpressibly happy. In their hell they had created heaven. Such was the power. All love. Dea heard Gwynplaine's love. Gwynplaine saw Dea's smile. Thus ideal felicity was found. The perfect joy of life was realized, the mysterious problem of happiness was solved. And by whom? By two outcasts. For Gwynplaine, Dea was splendor. For Dea, Gwynplaine was presence. Presence is that profound mystery which renders the invisible world divine, and from which results that other mystery, confidence. In religions this is the only thing which is irreducible. But this irreducible thing suffices. The great motive power is not seen. It is felt. Gwynplaine was the religion of Dea. Sometimes, lost in her sense of love towards him, she knelt like a beautiful priestess before a gnome in a pagoda, made happy by her adoration. Imagine to herself an abyss, and in its center an oasis of light. And in this oasis... Two creatures shut out of life, dazzling each other. No purity could be compared to their loves. Dea was ignorant what a kiss might be, though perhaps she desired it, because blindness, especially in a woman, has its dreams, and though trembling at the approaches of the unknown, does not fear them all. As to Gwynplaine, his sensitive youth made him pensive. The more delirious he felt, the more timid he became. He might have dared anything with this companion of his early youth, with this creature as innocent of fault as of the light, with this blind girl who saw but one thing, that she adored him. But he would have thought it a theft to take what she might have given. So he resigned himself with a melancholy satisfaction to love angelically, and the conviction of his deformity resolved itself into a proud purity. These happy creatures dwelt in the ideal. They were spouses in it, at distances as opposite as the spheres. They exchanged in its firmament the deep effluvium 
which is infinity, attraction, and on earth, the sexes. Their kisses were the kisses of souls. They had always lived a common life. They knew themselves only in each other's society. The infancy of Dea had coincided with the youth of Gwynplaine. They had grown up side by side. For a long time they had slept in the same bed, for the hut was not a large bedchamber. They lay on the chest, Ursus on the floor. That was the arrangement. One fine day, whilst Dea was still very little, Gwynplaine felt himself grown up, and it was in the youth that shame arose. He said to Ursus, I will also sleep on the floor. And at night he stretched himself with the old man on the bare skin. Then Dea wept. She cried for her bedfellow. But Gwynplaine, become restless because he had begun to love, decided to remain where he was. From that time he always slept by the side of Ursus on the planks. In the summer, when the nights were fine, he slept outside with Homo. When thirteen, Dea had not yet become resigned to the arrangement. Often, in the evening, she said, Gwynplaine, come close to me. That will put me to sleep. A man lying by her side was a necessity to her innocent slumbers. Nudity is to see that one is naked. She ignored nudity. It was the ingenuousness of Arcadia or Otaheite. Dea, untaught, made Gwynplaine wild. Sometimes it happened that Dea, when almost reaching youth, combed her long hair as she sat on her bed. Her chemise unfastened and falling off revealed indications of a feminine outline and the vague commencement of Eve, and would call Gwynplaine. Gwynplaine blushed, lowered his eyes, and knew not what to do in presence of this innocent creature. Stammering, he turned his head, feared, and fled. The Daphnis of darkness took flight before the Chloe of shadow. Such was the idyll blooming in a tragedy. Ursus said to them, Old brutes, adore each other. End of section 51